Welcome to another episode of FG Explained. We are almost towards the end of the season, but we have a lot more fun episode up ahead. Today, we have great guests coming up. But before that, Elliot, how have you been? Oh, man. Wait, do you just say that we're approaching the end of the season? Yes, did you not know? <laughs> We've been... I mean, I knew. I, I just wasn't prepared for it, you know. We'll say at the end of each episode, like, hey, we've got more episodes to come, more episodes to come. And then now it's like, hey, we're almost at the end. And I'm like, I thought we had more episodes to come. Now, <laughs> I think including this, we have four episodes left in the season. Four? Oh, man. And then we'll do our season review. And then we'll reclaim our Sundays, right? Then we'll, we'll get back to... Uh, walking in the parks and like sleeping in and and planning for season five maybe. Oh uh, uh, yeah, I mean, sure, sure, sure. You know what? Let me let me know when that time comes. So, so today I'm I'm super excited because we've always enjoyed doing our food episodes here on SG Explain. We've done episodes like laksa, prata, chicken rice, kopi, and actually as we were doing some of these things, I went to go and check out actually who's who in the food scene right here in Singapore oh. and what can we learn from what other people are doing and I was very surprised to find out that Pam who's our guest for today actually has been working on this great podcast called Singapore Noodle. Now I just thought it would be great to have her on our show to talk about heritage food in general that's just you know a big broader area that we that we've always touched on but never actually you know, really double-clicked on. And today we're going to talk about that. Pam is a Singaporean chef, the author of the best-selling cookbook, Wet Market to Table. And after graduating with an honors degree in food science and technology from the National University of Singapore in 2014, Pam has worked in restaurants such as Candlenut and the Carlton Wine Room in both Singapore and Melbourne. She started Singapore Noodles in 2020 as a platform to share about Singaporean food with a global audience and has a podcast that you should definitely check out. We'll put that link in the bio as well as many online articles and apparently a new magazine that covers recipes and, and stuff about, around Singapore food. So Pam, we're so happy to have you. Welcome! Our warm SG Explain welcome. Yeah. yeah! This is actually my second podcast episode that I've done on the other side of the podcasting scene. So it's really exciting to be a guest for, for a change, you know, and not have to worry <laughs> about how the conversation is going, how long the episode is. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to edit this at the end of the day, yeah, so that's exactly. always excellent. I, I can say that I'm a big fan of Candlenut. That's the place that I bring, like, if it's a serious relationship, you gotta bring the person the Candlenut for a date, okay? Then you can test the waters, like... Did you bring your wife to Candlenut? Of course, of course. Why, why wouldn't I? Was like before getting married or after? Yes, b- before. Before I got married. Because it was like, we need to do this because if you can't appreciate the taste of this, we might have some bumpy roads ahead. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a litmus test, but also a litmus taste. Get it? I mean, anyway, bad puns aside, thanks for joining us today. I think we're both really excited to explore the world of heritage food today, Rovic. So when I think of heritage food, again, I can only connect it with some of the ideas I've been exposed to in the US and the UK, right? Because they're super hard on around like protecting grains of rice around protecting certain food cultures and i was just thinking about it in singapore when we think of food culture we tend to think of stuff like chapitiao and traditional dishes i've always been confused by it because there is this tension between is it immigrant food or is it like singapore heritage food and what's well how do we draw some of those lines right and i, I think we may not end up drawing some of those lines by the end of the episode but i think today's episode <laughs> is to, to kind of explore where people may perceive some of these lines to be. I think it's a, it's, it's really great to have Pam because Pam's talked to so many people 
uh, on her show and she's she's been exposed to a lot of ideas and I think I'd love to just hear some of her own perspectives and what she's learned from others as well. And that is one of the hardest things of running Singapore noodles. Like what defines Singaporean food? How do you draw boundaries around it? And I think for me, I really view it as a collective because everyone has such different flavor memories going up, whether it's differences in dialect group or differences in race, right? Like, for example, for a Hokkien, what a Hokkien eats at home is so different from what a Cantonese person eats. So I think to me, there are like three main markers or criteria as to what I put up on Singapore Noodles as a website. So I think the first one is that it has to be true to the memories of Singaporeans. Like what we eat growing up, it doesn't have to be what your mom cooks at home. It could be something from the Tata stall, from the Mamak stall, from the Hawker Centre. So something that is quite interesting is that when I was thinking about what should go on Singapore Noodles, something that I really, really want to put on the website but haven't done so is Ritz apple strudel. Yeah, I love Ritz apple strudel. I love Ritz apple strudel. Yeah, okay. So the thing is, I don't think people consider it as heritage food, but I grew up <laughs> eating it so much, you know, like literally every party that my family was invited to, instead of seeing like a cake on the table, you would see apple, Ritz apple strudel. It's so true. My mom would always buy it. That's the thing. And they even <laughs> started having like peach strudels and stuff like that too. They're, they're right next to my house still. I, I live in Badok side, right? So right there, Badok mall there's a rich apple strudel store that's still there oh my gosh, it's so they still exist exactly and it's so different from the strudel in austria right i was watching in gloria Bastards and i was like oh it looks so different from what i was used to because in singapore we use puff pastry and like the top layer is glazed right so yeah, you all have yeah, yeah. like the melted sugar and then you have seasonal flavors like durian and it's so localized <sighs> right um, so I yes. do believe that it can be considered as heritage food. But some people didn't grow up with the same kind of memories. Maybe they went to a party and there wasn't like apple strudel on the table. So I, I think that it's very subjective and we shouldn't discount anyone's flavor memories. So the second um, criteria that I have is that it should be something that tells our story as Singaporeans. Uh, it should capture like a snapshot in history or a moment in time. So an example for this would be porridge kueh. I'm not sure if you have ever heard of this. Porridge kueh? As in like like kueh that is porridge? Kueh that is made from porridge. Okay, so my father-in-law told me that when he was younger, like his family didn't have a lot of resources. So his mom would actually repurpose leftover porridge. So she would add tapioca flour to it and knead it into a dough, cut it into strips, boil it into a kueh and she would stir fry it with rumpa. Apparently, it was quite a common dish of that era. So a lot of, not a lot, lah, some of my friends' parents, they also do cook that dish at home. And you know, now young people don't really know about this dish and it has like almost disappeared from the Singaporean food landscape. But I still do consider this a heritage food, you know, an example of heritage food. I just went to Google it and it looks like chai tai kuei. Right, know. exactly. Okay. <laughs> Have you tried it yourself? Yeah, so he taught me how to make it. And the funny thing is when he taught me how to make it, he was like, why don't I teach you and then you can create your own version and we'll invite my friends to have a taste. So, you know, being a young Singaporean, right, I'm like used to all this abundance around me. So I made like a luxe version with like prawns and like squid. <laughs> I mean, his, his friends came to taste it and they were like, you know, like I think we still prefer the traditional one because it is nostalgic, you know. That is what they grew up with. That is the essence of the dish, making something out of nothing. And also I think a third criteria would be 
it has to be localized to a certain extent. So for example, chicken rice, you find it in so many different countries, right? Like when you go to Thailand, there is Kamangai, right? Which is their version of chicken rice. But what we have in Singapore is so unique because we have our own chili dipping sauce. We have like that soy sauce gravy. You know what's funny? I actually went, and I think Rovik knows this story, but I actually went to the Hainan Islands because my family is from the Hainan Islands. And I was very psyched to go and have Hainanese chicken rice. But lo and behold, it is nothing like what we have here in Singapore. If anything, that chicken is way too hot. I, I couldn't eat through it. And I came home and I just craved it. I was like, okay, I want my local version. You know why Why is that? It's because Singapore actually has all the different dialect groups and they actually mingle with one another. So the Hainanese chicken rice that you had in Wenchang, right? That's the island where yes. it's from. It's actually influenced by the Cantonese way of poaching chicken in Singapore. So that's why they adopted that kind of technique. You know, the water bath, you know, it cannot boil. It cooks in the residual heat. And so that's why we have like that kind of silky texture in our chicken rice. See, learning so much about my own heritage, even in the, <laughs> the opening of this episode. Yeah, I know. I learned so much as well. I mean, throughout this journey, it's just like eye-opening. So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, some of the heritage ingredients from Singapore. I think there's quite a wide range of things that we're going to go through in this episode. And of course, with Pam's uh, deep and vast knowledge of our, of our local uh, food culture, we'll also dive into dishes later on. Okay, so heritage ingredients from Singapore. This was this was fun. Like Rovik, I know uh, you did a lot of the groundwork for this. And as I read through the show notes this time, what was surprising to me was that it's actually all around us, but at the same time, I did not notice any of it at all, right? When we think about our biodiversity, we always are aware that it's actually very diverse. There's so many things out here. But as third-gen Singaporeans or second-gen Singaporeans who, you know, kind of gotten a bit detached from actually touching the soil and really, you know, knowing what's out there in, in our forests or growing from our grounds or living in our oceans. Uh, this was actually very cool to kind of see actually what ingredients that we use actually come from from this part of the world, right? Come from uh, not just Southeast Asia, but even in Singapore. And so, I, I mean, we, we've shortlisted some. I would love to hear from Pam what other she's discovered or, or learned about. Elliot, why don't we start with the first one? Yeah, so the first one is the pangi tree, which is like native to this region. And su supposedly, and we found this off of like the NPARC's website, right? Is they consider it one of nature's monsters, right? It's a poisonous tree with awkward looking fruits, suggesting a stomach crammed in with like big seeds. Now, uh, the poison, which is hydrogen cyanide. Now I had to Google a little bit about hydrogen cyanide and yeah it's it's pretty it's pretty poisonous yes. so would not re 10 out of 10 would not recommend you guys biting into this okay at least not right away uh, and it occurs in all parts of the tree right so this poison in itself be on the lookout for it uh, this can easily be removed however by washing with water uh, natives have discovered this and have devised various ways of actually treating the leaves especially like the seeds so they can at least be you know consumed safely safely uh, the oil that can be extracted from the seeds is used by jungle folk for cooking when coconut oil you know is scarce uh, there's fresh leaves seeds or oil from the tree was actually used as an antiseptic and disinfectant in like the early days uh, when we move into like talking about the kennels, they, when they're treated, uh, they can actually be grounded to form this thick black gravy called rawon, which is very popular East Javan dishes that have this gravy include like nasi rawon and meats and sambal rawon. 
uh, in Singapore and Malaysia especially, uh, the seeds are best known as an essential ingredient in a lot of chicken dishes like ayam bakula, you know, which is a mainstay in Peranakan cuisine. One of my favorite things, I'm, I'm not going to lie, guys, I mean, I mean quite a bit of ayam bakula. And even I, I just know what to put in. I don't know all these fun facts about it. I just go to the market with my mom and I'm like, yeah, I need to pick this, that, and that. Don't know any names, right? You just tell uncle like, yo, one kilo of this and then you're out, right? And then you just do the thing. But sometimes knowing the name of it is actually, and something which I'm trying to learn still, is a way of passing it down from generation to generation, like a way of consolidating that knowledge and keeping it in the generation. If I did have my mom, or let's say she, she wrote a cookbook, right? But in that cookbook itself, it doesn't, it doesn't tell me the actual ingredients. She does write like bokloa, like seed. I was like, five times seed. I'm kind of, I can't go to the market and be like, hey, I like some seeds. You know, like it takes it takes a while to bring it all together to pass it to the next generation and keep ways of uh, preserving that knowledge. Another difficulty is that sometimes the names that we know it by is so different from what you find on the internet. So an example would be like Roselle flowers. When you go to the market and you tell them, I want some Roselle flowers, they wouldn't know what you're talking about, but you have to tell them, I'm looking for Ribena flowers. What do you use Roselle flowers for? So when I was growing up, my mom used to make a tonic out of it. So she would boil those flowers in water and it would turn the water kind of pink. And when you drink it, it will like lower your blood cholesterol, your blood pressure. And so it's um it tastes very similar to ribena. That's why they call it ribena flower. My my mom has this thing where she boils this pandan light leaf, and she call, she keeps calling it like Saint John's leaf. And I know it's not called Saint John's leaf, uh, or I don't know what it actually is called. But every time I try to Google or ask around, like, hey guys, you want to try the Saint John's leaf drink, right? <laughs> Everyone's just like question mark, question mark, question mark. Don't know what it is. I'm like, hmm. Maybe I'm getting it wrong, or maybe it's just oral tradition, right, within my family in itself. What, what I liked about the Kangi story was that it, it's true. When I think about uniquely Singaporean dishes, dishes that you don't see in like your Singapore knockoff store in the US or the UK, right? It's actually it's a bokolot that will never make it out. It's always something that is kept to this part of the world because it's such a involved kind of process to you know clean the nuts and make sure that you. You know how to, to cook it in the right way to make your bokola. So some of the ingredients that um, I learned when, you know, writing the cookbook, one of them is mountain yam, also known as Chinese yam. I'm not sure if okay. you've ever heard of it, but when I was growing up, my mom used to, I mean, because my mom is Cantonese, right? So she makes all her soups. So she would add um, dried versions of this mountain yam. So she would go to the... Uh, TCM halls or like the medicinal halls and buy dried versions of this she would boil it in soup but even fresh uh, the fresh version can also be used in soups apart from the Chinese who use it the Japanese also love this ingredient and that's something that is really interesting and, and, I, and I feel like it can be used as like part of the marketing for this ingredient because you know now Singaporeans love our Japanese ingredients so much right but we don't realize that this ingredient that is quite ugly you know and it's present in our wet markets is actually really revered by the Japanese you know the Japanese really love like sticky or like slimy kind of textures like dango and stuff like yeah, that yeah so they will call it like neba neba which means like that sticky slimy texture especially in summer uh, it allows food to like slide down your gullet right like makes it really easy to go down so, so hungry right now <laughs> gotta stop describing the feeling of food going down your throat it's like mm, yeah <laughs> they will grate the mountain yam and they'll add it to their sobas or like to their udon soups in order to give that texture to it, is yeah, it? Yeah, so it's kind of like a lady finger kind of texture. 
that kind of slimy texture. And uh, when you add it to, say, minced meat, it transforms the meat into something that is silky as well. And it's also added to uh, tamago yaki, which is the egg omelette, right? It gives it that fluffy kind of texture. Wow. So if I want to go buy this from the wet market, what do I what do I say? I think usually they know it by its Chinese name. So you can say shan yao. Or you can just say, oh, Chinese yam. I think your best bet is to like Google how it looks like and then just show the auntie. Show them the picture. Okay, we got the right idea. Google is telling me the name is Dios Korea, <laughs> which I don't think the web market auntie will understand. Yeah, so excuse me, sir, like like five sticks of Dioscoria Japonica. And he's like, oi. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So I mean, you never, never go wrong with a photo. That's the thing, right? I think like in our generation, right, Rovic, I go to the market quite often, right? So I only just point at things that I think I know how to use. That's about it. Like, I don't even know the names of these things. It's like one kg of this fish. Like, I see a bunch of shells. I don't even know what species. Like, I know it's clam, but some kind of like weird clam. I'm just like, no, just take this one. How, how hard is it? Right? How difficult is it going to cook? You know, I, actually on that point, I think when it comes to heritage ingredients, that's one of the things I wish I got right. So my mom has definitely taught me a good amount around Indian ingredients, right? Mm. Uh, rather the ingredients used in Indian cuisine. Uh, and so to some extent, I can tell the difference between maybe two or three different types of, of leaves. I know not all of them are just curry leaves. Uh, and and, <laughs> and, and that's, that's my level of achievement. But sometimes I go to the wet market and as someone who, who now has an appreciation and, and wants to know more about you know, our food culture, I look at the wide array of stuff that's there and I'm always very overwhelmed sometimes. I'm like, oh no, like I want to know what's the difference between this and that and this and that. And I want to know how I can cook it. But sometimes it feels like I'm just going to go back to the supermarket and, and look at the labels and try to find what I know. Right. So I know, Pam, you did a whole deep dive into wet markets, uh, which I, I wish we got you for our wet market episode. <laughs> but how have you like thought about you know, really taking the time to discover some of these unique ingredients and what have been some of your favorite finds? First of all, when you go to a wet market, right? I think why it's so difficult for young people is that it's so not our culture in that we have been brought up in this culture where you walk into Watson's or you walk into any shop, you don't make eye contact with the, the shop owner or like the, the salesperson. You just grab your stuff, read the label, go out of the shop. But in a wet market, it's so different because it forces you to have interaction with the shopkeeper. And um, I think that is where young people struggle. Um, so I remember when I was first going to the wet markets, you know, as an introvert, I would find it so difficult. Like when I came across something that I didn't know what it was, like I would stand in a corner and I would like Google like quietly in one corner. And I just realized that that wasn't the best way to go about doing things because it's so awkward, right? You know, you have your uncle or auntie ready to explain things to you. Um, so I think when you let go of that mindset and you really embrace, you know, the culture of the wet market, uh, that's when you can really learn I'm super guilty of that like I still do that I've been going to the web market for years do you? oh my gosh I go with my mom like every Sunday like that's a thing that we do right like a, like a mummy mummy and son special like we'll just go there and sometimes you say like hey I need to pick up these things uh, I should write a list but their list is just like Chinese like cabbage and write a bunch of different vegetables and I know what we call it at home but I, I learned early on that if I showed that list to the uncle at the veggie store he's not going to know what's going on. Most of them are not like native English speakers, mm. right? Most Chinese. Ed. And I found out like, man, I need to I, either A, dig for it myself or Google and just show him the picture. And 
now I'm much better at navigating, but I think you're onto something here, which is interaction. Like trying to get, when you're trying to build a knowledge base or when you're trying to really immerse yourself in understanding that, that, that cultural landscape of the market, you have to talk, right? Like these are the people who ingrained in their soul every day is the, the collection or like they're, they're working with all those kinds of stuff like local produce that we have. And if we don't talk to them, then how la then yeah, wasted. Waste yeah. I would also say, I think wet markets create the space for discovery, right? So if I like track my family purchasing habits, we've slowly moved away from going down to the wet market and now we do online delivery mm. for our groceries. And as someone who is a computer science major, and knowing how some of these things work, you ultimately are going to sharpen your inventory to what people keep ordering again and again, right? And at the end of the day, then people will just stick to the, the ingredients they're comfortable with or familiar with, and it, it loses out an opportunity for you to discover new ingredients or try something, right? And so, you know, these folks, they're not, they're going to, the wholesale purchasers, they're going to stop buying some of these maybe more niche or, or, or fringe ingredients, which... I suspect the wet market stall holders are probably, you know, they're just putting it on the inventory if they see it's cool. And I've seen that sometimes when you'll go and I'll say, oh, I have this special, I found this, I found that, right? So I, I think that's something else that, that would be unfortunate if we lose it, right? Mm. Um, and especially if they are truly heritage ingredients that have been normally used in very unique dishes that say a lot about our culture as well. What is unique about the wet markets, right? I feel that wet markets are always compared to farmer's markets in the West. And I feel that what is different is that you have like such a close relationship between the, the shop ven- vendors and people who frequent the wet market. Because in the West, right, you would have, say, one farmer's market in every town or like, you know, a few in every city. But in Singapore, it's literally one wet market every neighborhood. And so it's yeah. like super intimate in a way, which can be a good and a bad thing because good because you create that kind of rapport, right? But bad because it can be quite intimidating to people who are fresh, you know, uh, wanting to get into it for the first time. We've talked a bit about some of the ingredients, how to navigate the wet market to, to get in touch with these heritage ingredients we're going to take a short break right now and when we come back from the break we're going to talk about heritage dishes in singapore so specific meals that we may have forgotten actually belong to the singaporean culture and there's some really interesting ones there uh, that i'm looking forward to talking about so stay tuned we'll be right back we're glad you're listening to this episode and are part of the SG Explainers community. You're special because you're part of a group of people who are joining us to understand the Singaporean identity through a wide variety of topics. Ali and I do this completely out of passion, but we do incur costs to use software, equipment, and not to mention the time spent. We're hoping that you may consider supporting the SG Explained effort in one of two ways. If you click on the podcast description of the podcast you're listening to, you'll see a link that says support this podcast with a link to anchor.fm slash sg dash explain slash support. A contribution as small as 99 cents when added up by all our community members can go a long way for us. The second way is that if you want more bonus content for your buck, we've launched an email newsletter. That's right, all the content that doesn't make it to the podcast, including our own perspectives, videos and pictures, as well as links to more resources can be found in these email digests that provide compact information for your on-the-go reading. For five US dollars a month, basically the cost of a bubble tea, through Substack you can get a digest a week with great content. The internet has allowed 
you, the consumer, to directly express your support to creators like us without needing to depend on brand sponsors too much. We hope you can give whatever you feel comfortable with. Here at SG Explained, Elliot and I are committed to getting great guests, conducting thorough research, and bringing you quality explainers on all things Singaporean. Thank you for being part of our community. And we're back from the break. I hope that you had a great time grabbing a coffee or, or tea or whatever. Or some heritage food, you yeah, know? Yeah, or Roselle tea. <laughs> or right. Roselle that's, tea. Yeah. Wait, does Ribena count as Roselle tea? I guess. Okay, like, make yourself a cup of Ribena, guys. Hey, pause here and make yourself a cup of Ribena if you haven't done so. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll come back for another break. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. We're going back into this. We're going back into this. So we're going to jump right into some of the heritage dishes in Singapore. Again, right, when I think of heritage food, I tend to think of most stuff that you see in the hawker center but actually even that is just a subset of our larger food culture right and i I went to google what are some of the main dishes that the people think we're actually going to lose touch of or, or people think we're going to lose connection with and i i found a couple that were really interesting so the first one is this dish called chu he ng chai which is a cuttlefish salad basically it's a salad of cured cuttlefish and water spinach in a thick soy dressing and is often touted as grandma's recipe the main reason why people are moving away from this dish is because it has a funky smell and i actually thought that was quite funny because i realized that for a lot of my american or european friends when they come to singapore they also complain about most dishes having a funky smell so so to them like there's a standard of funkiness and this probably just exceeds all of that. It's very similar to this other dish called satay bihun. So like stalls that, that sell that dish, they will also sell satay bihun. I think the only difference is that there is bihun in satay bihun. But the like sauce is the same, the ingredients, the toppings are the same. I guess I wouldn't particularly crave for it just because I don't think it's like that easy to like, like chicken rice or laksa, you know? But I do love me some satay bihun though. Like it is one of my favorites. The next dish is called chui chia pao. Chui chia pao are teochew dumplings and they come in two varieties. Uh, the white ones are made with savory turnip while the dark brown ones are filled with sweet red bean. And both apparently require dexterity to perfectly fold the skin, which turn translucent. One steamed. There are only a couple of stalls that still make this. The one that I could find was Tiong Baru Dian Fa Shui Jing Pao, which, yes. uh, which makes it the old school way. Everything is prepared from scratch, including the red bean and yam paste, as well as a thin and chewy tapioca flower skin that can become gooey uh, in less experienced hands. Even the turnip is hand chopped instead of shredded to maintain just the right amount of crunchiness. So this was surprising to me because I guess in my very simplistic mind, I had just lumped together all types of pows. But apparently, even then, there are like, you know, some pows that are actually much more laborious and much more difficult to make that, again, people are concerned they will lose touch with. This this one in particular, I know exactly where you're talking about, Rovit, because that's a place uh, way back in the day when I was still at NUS uh, and I was trying to see this girl. Like, we were always going... <laughs> All my food stories are through with it for some reason, you know. I don't know why. Uh, but yeah, I would actually go down to... Ale- I think this one's at Alexandra, right? This is where that, that store that you were mentioning uh, is actually at because this girl that I like, she is Teochew and she's like, oh, this is the stuff that me and my family like crave once in a while. And I know it says Tiong Baru, but it's... No, it's not right. at Teo Baru. It's, it's Alexandra. Yeah. Alexandra, right? Hey, Jail, Jail, if you're listening to this, thanks for introducing this to me. All right, so the next item on our heritage food list is actually this thing called a gulai nenas, which I think is quite interesting. When I first saw it, I was just trying to wrap my brain because it looks a bit like curry-ish. It looks a bit paradakanish, but I don't think 
personally I've ever seen it before now I, I could be mistaken and a lot of you guys might call me Swaku for this but one of the fun things about it is that it's actually a staple in the Orang Lao household now this is uh, you can google the picture it's it's quite an interesting colour this is like a boiled sour soup dish and it's usually paired with uh, a type of fish like ikan kembung or uh, ikan dingis and the pineapples are used to bring about this sweetness and tanginess to the spicy prawn broth. Uh, it is best paired with hot rice and, of course, how can you forget sambal blachan? Now, it's interesting because when, you know, Rovik, when you found this dish for us, I went to like read up a lot more about it. I was thinking, man, it feels really Puranakan, but I don't think I've seen it in any Puranakan restaurants, lah, so to say. And I think what's interesting is that we're talking about an Orang Lao dish, right? And when I was thinking about heritage food, I was really trying to be puritan about it in fact i was like what is like the original original cuisine of this land and yeah. the orang lawut who who are you know the first folks who've lived here uh, I, I guess as as far as our history tells us at least they were the ones that really lived off the sea were foraging from the coastal areas and uh, there is a group in singapore called orang lawut sg that that tries to spearhead a culinary revival of orang laut food and the gulai nanas is one of those dishes and i know pam pam you've done an episode on orang laut cuisine right so i want to hear your views on, on not just this dish but the overall orang laut culinary scene as well well to be frank i've never ever tasted orang laut food before but uh from what i've heard from fadaos there, there are quite a lot of overlaps between that and malay cuisine what, what i like about it is that if you go to oranglaut.sg uh, they actually do have tasting sets that you can you can try. Uh, they are actually priced at a rate that you would compare with any sort of like home based uh, cooking or, or you know just home based chefs, right? So I actually I liked it because it it is showing the sort of elevation or, or preservation of this. And you know, Pam, we talked about this uh, when I came onto your show, right? It's it's one way to preserve food to make it fine dining esque uh, and try to try to basically put it within that realm of, of cuisine. And I think. It, to some extent, this is what's happening here, right? You're really showing that this is laborious food. It is yeah. uh, a lot of culture and, and, and intellectual property, one would argue, uh, that's gone into this. Yeah, you know what I feel that they're doing really well? I feel that they are packaging the experience so well. And I think that it's so necessary when it comes to preservation of uh, heritage cuisine and making it relevant to young people. So I, you know, just from what I've seen on Instagram, like when the food comes, they also send you like postcards of, photos like family photos if i'm not wrong and like the story wow. of the dishes and i feel that it really creates a sense of like oh you know now i understand what orang laut cuisine is better rather than you know just eating like just purely consumptive there is actually an element of storytelling which i feel is so important coming from a digital marketing side of the house one of the things that we know about gen z's and this is just statistics <laughs> is that they pride they pride experiential components over just you know having having something like productization eating food in a way is just buying a product but experiential eating is a whole different ball game and you know, I actually really love the way that I, I would agree. Like the packaging looks great. I eat like sotong hitam, asam pedas, like on a very regular basis in my household. But the way they've portrayed it here with this whole like, like the the copy, the write ups of it, 
really makes you want to partake in that culture for, for audiences that find it foreign. Uh, we have one more dish which I, I wanted to bring up. Now, this one looks really cool. Nasi ulam, or, or it's also known as like Malaysian mixed herb rice. It's um, part of Peranakan culture as well. And it is usually served at special occasions, including birthdays and, and Lunar New Year. Now, some recipes call for the addition of gragu or this baby krill and chopped prawns, uh, which others include like herbs such as betel leaves. Now, this one looks really interesting. Pam, is there anything you could share with us about nasi ulam? I've never tasted it before. I love this dish. Wait, you've had it? The level of geo is bored, dude. Like- well, look, I went to Kin because I'm a member mm. at Straits Clan. Right? Makes sense, so makes yeah. sense, yeah. Damien, he has the dish on the menu, but he reserves it for specific days and only specific quantities or limited quantities. So you're the VIP lad. So you always have to call and make sure you reserve your portion of nasi ulam. <laughs> and it's so good. What does it taste like? It's very delicate. It tastes like each bite is just like this fresh combination of ingredients. So you have a lot of like fresh herbs, right? But at the same time, there's umami that comes from like, uh, some people use rampa, some people use like salted fish, some people use salted eggs as well. So I feel that now Nasi Ulam is enjoying a resurgence, right? Because a lot of people are very health conscious and they want to eat like more um, meatless dishes. So Nasi Ulam is like a favorite amongst, you know, my friends. Now. So I always see it on their Instagram account. All right. I'm hoping for the resurgence so that I can actually try this. You know what I mean? Bam, you can make it or not? No, that's the thing about being a, being overseas because nasi ulam right you cannot substitute any how like it has to be specific kind of herbs that go into a nasi ulam it's not like say kalamansi if you can't find kalamansi then you just use the big limes flavor profile wise you need to have very specific things yeah. you're looking for la. so you have like sliced thinly sliced wing beans you have like laksa leaves you know you have all of those herbs that make it so unique in flavor and I feel that it's a dish that is so close to people's hearts that if I were to make any substitutions like I'll probably get cancelled so I'd rather not <laughs> <laughs> no one's gonna cancel you you can just call it the nasi pamla <laughs> Yeah, just, just just change it up. Nomenclature, nomenclature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What other heritage dishes have you been tracking? Actually, I, I really like highlighting dishes that have fallen off the radar. So example, you know, one dish that I really like is Tau Kwa Pao. Tau Kwa Pao. Yeah, Tau Kwa Pao is great. I'm, I'm shocked to hear that actually because it's not very highly regarded or most people don't know about it because there's just one stall in Danyan that sells this um, dish. Okay, so the history behind this dish is very interesting. So I think it was created in the 50s or the 60s, right? By this guy called Ku Baktik, if I'm not wrong. And he owns like a Teochew braised duck stall. So his stall actually was located at Katong, which is a Paranakan enclave, right? So, and the Paranakan ladies are known for their love for gambling. So, I think to attract them, he started creating this Tau Kwa Pao, which is basically like a golden tofu. Looks like an ingot. Uh. Yeah, and he would chop all the ingredients uh, com- that comprise his uh, duck rice, like the fish cake, the the offal, the meat, the cucumber, and he'll stuff it into this Tau Kwa. And um, the ladies would call it Ho Pao. So that is their name for it. And Ho Pao means like purse, you know, the little beaded purse. Yeah, okay. So that's how it got started. So it has two names. Like one is Tau Kwa Pao, one is Ho Pao. Tau Kwa Pao is so good. I didn't know it was like a heritage dish because 
I mean, I live so near Diamond Food Centre. It's always there. Now you have to eat as much as possible. Yeah, la, because now you're telling me it might go extinct. Right? I have no choice but to eat it more often. And even something like uh, satay bihun, right? Like when I was first researching uh, this dish, so many sources was like, you know, like all those food blogs or food reviewer sites, right? They would say, oh, you know, it's served with a watered down satay sauce gravy. So I thought that that was, you know, basically it. And then when I went to dig deeper into uh, the ingredients of this dish, I realized that it's not just the ingredients of a peanut sauce, but there were also Chinese ingredients like five spice powder, like people, which is um, soul fish bones that have been salted and preserved and ground into a powder. And I was like, oh my God, what is this? It's like an amalgamation of Malay rempah making and Chinese dried goods. And like when I tasted the sauce, I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Someone needs to like bottle this and sell it in Singapore. So Seth Lee, you heard that? You heard that, Seth Lee? <laughs> you better be more accurate with your reviews yeah, from I now onwards, Seth. Seth Lee, yeah. <laughs> Let's get no, Seth and I are friends. Seth, I know you listen to this. So you better get your act together, bro. <laughs> I think I just wanted to close off this episode by looking at the future of food heritage, right? Which is a bit of a or paradoxical statement. I know there's been an increased focus globally around food genealogy, especially in the past decades. I know the Botanic Gardens, for example, has you know a genome library, so it preserves a lot of the original genomes and DNA of some of our food. You guys can check it out in our Botanical Gardens episode. We talk a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. Shout out to our old episodes. Yeah. I'm curious now that there's a lot of scientific research and and modifications that are happening to our food. Uh, using technology such as GMO or actually given that some of our food ingredients are being substituted by imported ingredients, right? What what do you think uh, the impact could be on our food culture and heritage? Do you see it as as a significant issue or, or not? So my husband is from the agriculture industry. So it was, you know, I, I think it's really interesting to to talk to him about this topic. And what he told me is that um, actually... GMO is highly regulated and so it's only impacting crops such as like soybeans, corn, canola and a lot of Asian vegetables like your bok choy, like your xiao bai cai, they have been untouched for centuries. So I don't think that is really a problem for us. But I think what is a, what poses a greater problem is Singaporeans' lack of appreciation for these ingredients that is causing them to disappear from our wet markets. And I think that really makes me quite worried. So I was talking to Dr. Eric Olmedo um, on my podcast. So he's a researcher based in Malaysia and his uh, body of research focuses on nasi ulam and ulam in general. Yeah, so I mean, that is a potential podcast guest for you. Thanks, thanks. I think he heard a comment from a Malaysian youth that, you know, eating ulam, which is the traditional Malay vegetables, right? Like your wing beans, like your petai. To eat these things to them, it is like going back to the kampong days, you know, like regression. So they call people who eat these vegetables kambing, which means goat. And it's like very derogatory. And I think it goes to reflect the kind of like mindset young people have about our regional ingredients. And I think with more and more like globalization and exposure to Western media, Western recipes, Western ingredients, like we can see the impact that it has already had on our wet markets. When I was writing the book, it was so difficult to find ingredients like roselle flowers. You know, the auntie would tell me like, we only want to sell this like two, two days a week because no one buys it. 
And in its place, you have things like cherry tomatoes on vine, like endives, radicule, kale. And I mean, there's nothing wrong with selling or buying these ingredients. But the fact that these ingredients are replacing what our mothers or what our grandmothers used to cook with, that is really troubling to me. It's like a demand supply issue, exactly. like you're thinking, right? Like the less we demand it, the less they supply. And one day it's just wiped out. And because I've grown up in the whole wet market ecosystem of my mom throughout like my childhood, like avocados, I think about like today, avocados have like a whole section for them in the wet market. But when I was a kid, I, I you know, we used to say like, well, avocados are damn rare. Now it's like yeah, yeah. everywhere all the time. So you can kind of see that swing already in the in the past like decade or so. Exactly. And Dr. Omedo, like he was telling me that because he, his motivation is to alleviate problems such as diabetes or like obesity in Malaysia, which are huge chronic problems. And people don't want to eat like moringa, you know, which is something that's like full of all these like, you know, it's touted as this wonder food or like super food in the West. Um, but Singaporeans and Malaysians, we only want to eat avocados and kale, you know, in the juice or whatever. And and yet there is so many of these like medicinal ingredients in our own backyard that we don't know about. We've known Moringa for a long time, but now it's having this resurgence in like the health powder scene. Yeah, That's or, insane. Or even like turmeric, right? Now you have turmeric. Yeah, even turmeric. And it's not like we want to replace the ecosystem back to, you know, just having those things. And, you know, certainly our, our tastes and our palates have kind of changed across the years. But it's about finding that balance so that we don't lose it entirely, right? Like we want to make sure that the ecosystem is healthy enough that we can accommodate both the past, the present, and hopefully that kind of like throws ourselves into the future. Yeah. And I think when we think about heritage ingredients, right? Like, I mean, throughout this whole conversation that we've had, we've been touching primarily on like vegetables, but we don't think that something like seafood can constitute as heritage ingredients. So for example, things like like frog legs or like stingray or like seafood, you know, all these are part of our heritage. But when I was talking to people on the podcast, I had this Paranakan cookbook author come on. He was telling me about how ingredients such as wolf herring. So wolf herring is actually a primary ingredient in nasi ulam. And it's fading from the wet markets because it's very bony. And young people these days want to eat like boneless fillets, right? They don't want to struggle with the bone. Myself included. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although Chef Damien makes a great wolf herring uh, ota kind of dish, which is yeah, amazing. I know he's very passionate about his wolf herring. He was my very first podcast guest. And he was oh, like wow. very passionate about wolf herring and nasi wulam. Something has to happen, like a change has to happen to encourage young Singaporeans to not only fall in love with heritage ingredients, but to fall in love with cooking as a whole, you know? And that is the only way to drive change. There's a lot of effort that's been in place to revive like heritage cuisine. We talked a little bit uh, about like Orang Lawood SG, but there are other groups such as like, you know, like Damien's Cookhouse, uh, Rainbow Lapis. What impact do you think these efforts make? And for us, what is still lacking? Like how can we contribute to help maintain or, or preserve our heritage? So for me, right, there are three main components. I think the first one is providing people with opportunities to taste the food. When it comes to, say, things like Pang Susi, which is like a Eurasian classic, right? I mean, where can you go to buy such things nowadays, right? So I mean, when people don't have the opportunities to taste these foods, they don't have that flavor memories, you know? So for mm. example, I am like the second eldest uh, cousin in my extended family. And my younger cousins are all in their early 20s now. And they have, like, they can't tell the difference between the different kueh. Or like when I say, oh, you know, have you had this uncle kueh? They're like, what is uncle kueh? And that worries me. Now with so many choices 
presented to you from different parts of the world. You know, there are so many delicious options out there, but what dis- distinguishes your your country's food from all these other delicious options? It's really nostalgia. It's really flavor memories and our identity as Singaporeans. And so when, when they tell me, you know, I don't know why it's Kuei Pai Ti, I don't know why it's Uncle Kuei, that really, really troubles me. Even I love my Kuei Pai Ti, you know. <laughs> I don't lose Kuei Pai Ti. Hey, right. Rovi, you come to my house, I go for your Kuei Pai Ti. What I'm hearing also is that your first criteria here is accessibility, right? Like giving opportunities and like for people to be able to try these things without that fear of like, oh, this is so foreign. Like, hey, I, I don't know where I can get this. We always have these episodes about heritage and stuff, right, Rovi? And it's a common thread where something is lost because there is now a new barrier to entry in order to access it. So, I mean, opportunities could come in the form of restaurants, pop-ups, or even like just cooking for your children at home, just to give them the opportunity to taste the same kind of food that you grew up with. And this is true for both Singaporeans who are living back home or Singaporeans who are living abroad. You know, it's so important. So that's the first one. And the second one I feel is to um, have documentation. So I think there are blogs doing it, there are YouTubers doing it. There's podcasters like you doing it. True. Yeah, true. it's podcasters like you. I feel that there could be more done. I know like a lot of families like to guard their recipes and like say, oh, I can only share them with my children or my grandchildren. And so like they are not very comfortable with putting their recipes out there. And I mean, that's completely fair because it's like their IP, right? But at the same time, I just fear that that might also contribute to the possible death of our cuisine or like parts of our cuisine. So like things like Eurasian food, you know, Eurasian culture is known for being very protective of the recipes because it's seen as an heirloom. You know, that's why there is so little recipes shared outside of the community. That's very interesting. You know, I don't know if you ever heard of like the bakwa rice that we used to have in Singapore. What's that? Bakwa rice? Okay. So this is this is a story which my grandparents and my 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 parents included used to tell me where in Juchet there was a very famous bakwa rice store. Now I don't know if it's it's just like some weird mythos, um, but I've heard it from several people, and it's a lost recipe now because the children of the guy who used to run this bakwa rice store. Uh, and he used to do like chicken, so it was like the chicken ball, like the chicken rice ball stuff, and he also did bakwa rice. And because his kids didn't take over it, he wasn't willing to share that recipe with anyone else and it just died. Something I've been trying to track for the longest time. Wait, so there's no more bakwa rice out there? There's no more bakwa rice. As in like, it used to be a thing where you eat bakwa with rice and then there's like a sauce to go along with it. Man, one day we should get my mom on this podcast just to talk about it because she always laments to me like, you know, if you don't take my recipes now, you'll end up like the bakwa rice guy. I'll <laughs> be like, yo, I'm trying my best here, okay? Oh, this is the first time I'm hearing of this. So thanks for sharing. <laughs> Maybe I'll try to recreate it on Singapore noodles. I was sharing this because I think in your circle, these are the kind of things that you could probably find out a lot better than I than I can, right? And I guess like the, the last criteria would be um, providing opportunities for people to teach and learn and I think people don't talk about this enough because we don't feel that our food is as artisanal as the food from the west you know we feel like wow you know from the west you have the cheese you have charcuterie things like that sourdough and we we gladly pay money for that that kind of thing or like we'll actively go and learn but with Singaporean food you have things that are also very like layered and complex and 
very technical like uh, tose, you know, or like flaky curry puffs. That is super technical. Um, and so I feel that it's a combination of all three factors la, that really helped with the preservation of Singaporean food. I'm optimistic because just listening to your podcast, Ben, you get to hear people across the board. So not just your heavyweights like Damien, but also young people, right, who are coming up, who are trying to preserve uh, generational heirlooms and, and stories and stuff like that. And I think uh, hopefully stuff like what we're doing here encourages and engages people to do more uh, in this space. And I think as with most of our SGA Queen episodes, we'd like to, to remain optimistic that there can be a preservation of heritage food. And it is a celebration of who we are. Yeah. Right? When we preserve our heritage food, we're also making a stand that we care about you know, what's come before us and we want to continue uh, preserving it for the future. How can people find out more about Singapore Noodles? So our website is sgpnoodles.com and you can follow us on Instagram. It's sgpnoodles. Don't forget to go and like subscribe to to Pam's podcast, okay guys? Like, I'm sure if you ever want to be in the mood for food, I think that's the place to go. We only give you food episodes maybe two or three times a season. Periodically. Hers, hers, hers is every episode, okay? Yeah, <laughs> man. <laughs> yeah. With that being said, thank you so much, Pam, for joining us today. It was a wonderful honor and pleasure to talk to you and I'm very sure our audience listening in, you've, you've really like stirred their taste buds up for something more. Uh, and to our listeners, thank you so much for being here with us today. Don't forget to uh, like, comment, share this episode with all your friends. It's the only way that we can, uh, you know, get the word out, especially for the causes that we're supporting. We'll see you in the next episode for more interesting tidbits, fun facts, and, uh, you know, the history of Singapore, as always. Uh, this is Elliot and Rovic. You know, we're signing off. Take care. Bye.